Does medication really help children with ADHD learn better in the classroom? Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Luis Hernandez is out today. A new study from Florida International University challenges the notion that prescriptions help kids with ADHD perform better academically. We talk to the study's senior author to find out more. Also, we meet the first black professor at the University of Miami Rosenstiel School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences. She's also the first black professor there to make tenure. What does she want to do next? Finally, they call themselves the world's youngest Beatles tribute band. The group of teens that make up Miami Beach's own Sunset 4 are taken to the stage again soon. All of that today on Sundial after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from the Miami Cancer Institute. Welcome to Sundown on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Luis Hernandez is out today. Children have been prescribed medication to deal with ADHD for decades. A new study shatters the notion that these meds actually help. Nearly 10% of kids in the U.S. share this diagnosis. 90% of them are prescribed some form of medication. It's supposed to help with their behavior and improve their academic success. Researchers Researchers at Florida International University discovered that might not be the case. They evaluated a group of children with ADHD and found that they learned the same, whether they were taking medication or a placebo. Joining us now to talk about this new study is Dr. William E. Pelham, Jr. He is the senior author of the study and director at the Center for Children and Families. Dr. Pelham, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yes, so let's start by exploring what young people who have ADHD are more likely to face in classrooms. What are the symptoms of ADHD and some of the challenges that they come with? The symptoms of ADHD are most prominent in school settings, more prominent than in home settings, and they include problems with paying attention, problems with impulse control, and to a lesser extent, problems with activity level. So a child with, uh, in a classroom setting with ADHD will be off task more. So if a teacher makes an assignment for them to do, the other kids in the class will be uh, starting the assignment and working on it. And the ADHD child may be looking out the window or getting up to sharpen his pencil or anything that's off task. As a result, kids with ADHD don't complete as much work in school as kids who don't have ADHD. And there are long-term effects, perhaps even financial difficulties in the future as well? Yes, well, if you're, if you're uh, an elementary school child who's not doing well academically, then the worst that happens to you is you get bad grades. But as you move up in school, the consequences of not doing your work and not uh, succeeding academically grow worse. So in high school, for example, ADHD kids are far more likely to fail a grade than, in, uh, than kids without ADHD. And they're far less likely to graduate from high school because of their failures in, uh, in getting their work done and learning in school. Hmm. And yeah. kids who don't graduate from high school are less likely to be able to go to college and to get good jobs. And it's a, a spiral that just continues throughout their lifespan. Now, Dr. Pelham, there has been a long held belief among many medical professionals and educators that prescription drugs are the one-size-fits-all solution for kids diagnosed with ADHD, uh, improving classroom behavior. And like you said, as a result, they've said, you know, children improve learning. Uh, your study challenges that notion. Uh, what did your study find? 
study found a very clear evidence that medication does not help academic performance in school, uh, specifically learning in school. And we did, we did a study that was different from anything that anyone had ever done before. There are lots of studies showing that ADHD kids uh, look like they're paying better attention when they're taking their medication than when they're not. And you can do that in a one-day study, uh, two-day study. Put children on medication one day, not on medication one day, and you'll see big improvements in their on-task behavior while they're doing their seed work. However, this study took those evaluations a, stay, a step longer by saying, okay, they look like they're on task more, but are they actually learning more? And we did that by having a, an excellent curriculum that we had really good teachers teach the children. And then we measured very carefully in, after their instruction in social studies, science, and vocabulary, whether they learned any of the material that was taught. And what we, what we were shocked to find is that they all learned because the teaching was good, the instruction was good, the curriculum was good, but the kids who were medicated didn't learn any more than the kids who were not medicated. I mean, not a minuscule level more. So they were exactly the same as the kids who were not medicated. And that was, that's the big finding. Wow. And that's despite the fact that we were observing the children's classroom behavior at the same time and, and showed as we almost always do, that they behave better in the classroom, they violated fewer rules, and they looked like they were paying better attention and completing more work, but they weren't learning better. Hmm. And that's a big surprising finding. And, and Dr. Pelham, you say surprising, you even said shocking earlier. Uh, did you have any expectations going into it? Well, based on the previous 30 years of research showing that they are on task more, they appear to be paying better attention, and they're violating fewer rules and they're getting more work done. I, and I think everybody else thought, well, every pediatrician in the country thinks that they're doing well academically when they're medicated because those things change. So the difference in this study, what we did was we actually measured how much they learned from good instruction from, uh, from well-established teachers and discovered that their attention, their improvement in attention, their improvement in impulse control do not translate at all into learning more of what they're being taught. And why was this research important to you? Uh, one reason it was important to me is uh, many years ago, I did the very first study looking at the effect of medication in classroom settings. And in that study, we couldn't at that time measure learning because there wasn't a curriculum available that would let us measure how much the kids learned in a very short period of time. So we just looked at whether they were on task more and whether they completed more seat work when they're medicated when they weren't, and they were. And we published that in a leading pediatric journal and that made everybody think, okay, well, we can start giving medication to kids to make sure that they're doing well academically. So uh, unfortunately, in a way, I started the emphasis on this a long time ago. And uh, I never did believe that it was helping them learn, but I hadn't bothered to do a study to show that and then publish it in a prominent journal so that pediatricians can learn about it. Hmm. Now, uh, Ritalin and Adderall, these are stimulants that I often hear about when physicians treat children who are diagnosed with ADHD. Um, how do these medications work? What's the sort of intended purpose? The medications work in the central nervous system of the brain. They're, they're, the class of medication is central nervous system stimulant drugs. And what they do is they stimulate activity in the parts of the brain that 
enable the child to pay better attention and to control their impulses. That's why they work the way they do. And they, they're very good at that. They do, in fact, make children uh, sustain attention or maintain their attention for much longer periods of time. And they make children much less impulsive. That's why this was such a surprising finding to us because we and everybody else thought if they're paying better attention and they're being less impulsive, then they're going to learn more. But mm. that's the part that didn't turn out to be the case. And, and this, is a, this is a really big study, uh, an enormous sample size for studies of this type and really well done study published in a very prominent journal. Although I would say that I was disappointed in the sense that it was rejected from the leading pediatric journal in the country. And, and we therefore submitted it to the leading psychological journal in the country. I wish that it had been accepted at pediatrics where I published a paper 40 years ago showing something similar, but showing positive effects. Um, but we'll just have to make sure the word gets out to pediatricians via uh, interviews like this and, uh, and uh, other media entities. Delib yeah. Delib <laughs> Physicians know that they should be, in fact. Uh, and wh why was it rejected? Why? Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, scientific papers get rejected because whoever is selected to review them says this has problems. And in my opinion, uh, the rejection was because the, in part because the doctors didn't understand the methodology because it's very good methodology, very sophisticated methodology. And in part because their firm belief for the last 30 years has been that they're doing good by prescribing medications to these kids. 90% of kids with ADHD get medication as the primary form of their treatment. Starting in 2019 and 2020, the primary, uh, the primary academic associations of pediatricians changed their guidelines to say that medication should not be the first line treatment, that uh, psychosocial and psychoeducational treatments should be the first line. That, that is, behavior therapy, behavioral interventions, and good academic instruction should be the first line treatment with medication added only as necessary after the other ones have been started. Right. Dr. Collin, 90% is a huge, that, that's massive. What, what, what are the common side effects of these medications? One of the nice things about the stimulants is that, uh, they take effect very quickly, which is the reason they're used for ADHD is they take effect very quickly. So within 30 minutes of taking a pill, an ADHD child has completely changed behavior. He's paying way better attention than he was before he swallowed the pill and he's much less impulsive. But the medications wear off over time. Uh, in the old days, medication wore off after four hours or so with new versions of medication that have longer acting delivery mechanisms medication can last as much as eight to 10 hours. But once they wear off, they're completely gone. So every day is a new day for an ADHD child who's medicated. He has to take a new pill and he'll be medicated for as long as that pill is active in his system. And since 90% is um, um, the, the primary form of treatment, does this open the possibility for abuse? Um, there has not been a history of abuse amongst kids with ADHD and stimulant medication. Uh, I think because the kids are younger than our typical abusers. So these are mostly elementary school age kids, occasionally younger middle school age kids. But by the time ADHD children get to be in late middle school and high school, 
they won't take the pills anymore. So they tell their parents they don't like the way it makes them feel, so they're not going to take medication. And most parents give up the struggle, and then the kids don't have any treatment because the pediatricians have given only medication when they're younger and not the other treatments that help support the family and help support teachers in the school settings. Hmm. I'm speaking with Dr. William E. Pelham Jr. He's the director at the Cancer for Children and Families at FIU. And Center C- for Center for Children. Center, I'm sorry. <laughs> Center okay. for Children and Families at FIU and senior author of a new study that ch- that challenges a notion for kids with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. That medication helps with learning in the classroom at all. You can read the study and find more on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Now, Dr. Pelham, you were talking about how you started this emphasis on medication. And now with this study, you found medication might not have the impact experts originally thought. How does that feel for you? A a full circle moment for you? It is pretty much a full circle moment. Uh, I have always argued that psychological treatments are better. And, And those are psychological treatments based by training parents how to work with the children and psychological treatments based on training teachers how to work with children. And that's what I've worked on for my whole career. Uh, I also have published more studies than anybody else on how to combine that with medication. And I've always thought that the common adding medication to the psychosocial treatment was a good thing for most kids. And I think that's probably true, but if you start the psychological and educational treatments and you do really good treatments like that first, then you need much lower doses of medication to maximize the children's improvement in their responsiveness. And in theory, a really good educational instruction and a little bit of medication, the combination of those two, plus good classroom management by teachers, is optimally the best treatment for kids with ADHD. And that's now what's recommended by most leading professional organizations. Hmm. And yeah, let, let's dig a little bit deeper into the study. Researchers and educators used a control group to examine children with behavioral and learning challenges between the age ages of seven and, and twelve. Uh, can you describe how this study was conducted for folks who may have who, have, who may have missed that? Yes, the study was uh, very very well designed. We did not have a control group. We used the kind of design where each participant is their own control. So we did it in a summer school setting. Half of the summer was spent with children taking medication and half the summer was spent with children taking placebo. And in each of those two conditions, we taught them a separate set of academic uh, material, social studies, science, and geography. Then we compared how much the kids learned in their social studies, science, and vocabulary during the half of the summer when they were receiving medication to the amount they learned in the half of the summer when they were receiving placebo. So each child was his own subject control, in other words. Hmm. And what we found is that when they're medicated, the children did not learn any more than when they were not medicated. They learned a ton over the course of the summer. It was really good instruction, but they didn't learn any more at all. And it was, and I mean, no more. Like if you looked at the graphs, you would see there was absolutely no difference between the two lines. And that was the big surprise to us. Yeah, like you said, uh, you certainly didn't expect, uh, as you mentioned and, earlier. Uh, how- yes. The other thing, let me say one more thing. Sure. Uh, unfortunately, I think that a lot of parents end up uh, getting medication because not only their pediatrician believes that it works, but their teachers believe that it works. And the teachers believe that because they've had many years of experience seeing ADHD children taking medication and behaving better in the classroom. And they, just like me, think that means the kids are going to learn better in the long run. 
what this study shows is, is that that's not the case. So I hope, I hope the word gets out to teachers that they need to be telling parents, uh, you, if you're going to do medication, you need to be doing, uh, we need to be doing good educational interventions in the classroom, and you need to be getting some good parent training at home. The combination of those might be very helpful, but medication alone is not going to do the trick. So teachers need to know that as well as pediatricians. As well as pediatricians. Now, now, did this study account for traditional classroom settings or do virtual settings change things at all? Uh, this was not done virtually. It was done in a, in essentially a summer, uh, a summer school-like setting. So we were at a regular elementary school in Miami-Dade County that we rent every summer to run a summer treatment program. And we did it in a regular classroom in that school, Paul Bell Middle School. And, uh, and our regular instructional materials, everything was done the way it's typically done. Sure. In, sure. In excellent Do, setting. Doctor, I guess what I'm asking is, uh, does the study account for traditional classroom settings or, or virtual settings? What would the outcome be dif- oh, different? Oh, I see. Uh, well, this was a traditional classroom setting. It was slightly smaller than a traditional classroom, but not a whole lot. Uh, it was not virtual. I don't know what the results would be for well, I can I can speculate <laughs> based on what I've learned, what I've seen happening to our ADHD children over the last two years is that a child who has trouble paying attention in school is going to have way more trouble if he's trying to do his schoolwork online at home with his toys in the bedroom and and television in the living room and so forth. And that's what what we've seen over and over and over as we've tried to work with our families to help their children make it through the last two years. Now, let's say a child with financial issues is living in a food desert and doesn't have enough resources to do well in school. How does these stimulants have a stronger, oh, I'm sorry, do these stimulants have a stronger impact on children with a poor socioeconomic background? No, the research literature suggests that um, that the stimulants work regardless of psychosocial backgrounds. And the reason for that is that uh, uh, is that they work directly on the brain. So you swallow the pill and it has an effect on your brain. So there's no mediating mechanism that would be associated with, uh, with poverty, for example. Hmm. However, we do know from one study that's been done that families of low-income students, um, mainly African-American students, family, th- those families, uh, the kids are less likely to continue the medication once they start it. It's a very prominent study that was done over the course of a school year. And about half the children in that study, or more than half, stopped taking medication during that year. Wow. And, and very briefly, uh, could, you, could this study have an impact on how physicians diagnose and treat kids with ADHD in the future? I, our study? Yes. I certainly, I certainly hope it does. Uh, I hope it gets a lot of publicity among pediatricians. And I can say that... Uh, the, the new guidelines that came out a year ago, we have noticed in our center here, huge changes in what pediatricians and child neurologists are doing. We're getting much more referrals for our summer program from pediatricians and child neurologists since their guideline committees at the national level have recommended that behavioral interventions be the first line treatment. Hmm. So we've seen big increases in that, and I hope that this study just makes more of that happen so that more and more people add in the appropriate alternative treatment that they need to when they are medicating kids. Absolutely. I want to thank our guest, Dr. William E. Pelham Jr. He is the director at the Center for Children and Families at FIU. Thanks for joining us today, doctor. Thank you very much for having me. 
Still to come, we meet a University of Miami professor who recently became the first black person in her school to make tenure. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. For women of color, staying in academic research isn't always common or easy to do. Some women are trying to help each other thrive in academia, even when they struggle to find good mentors at their universities. Like Professor Nikki Trailer knows, she teaches and she researches coral immune systems at the University of Miami Rosenstiel School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences, also called RASMUS. She is the first black faculty member and the first black faculty member to receive tenure at the Rosenstiel School. That's an honored accolade in academia. Earlier this week, Sundial's Katie Munoz spoke with her about what it's like to be a black woman in the world of marine science in South Florida. I do want to congratulate you on your tenure. You know, what did that moment feel like when you found out? <laughs> um, it was it was a good feeling. You know, I had in my mind like that it would be this, you know, momentous occasion. I don't know. You know, you you build it up for so long. And so it was kind of it was a a little bit anticlimactic, but also really relieving. I don't know. It was really hard to describe. Um, you know, it's almost like, I don't know. I, I sort of equated it to like the day after you get married and you're like excited, but like also really tired and are kind of like, now what? You know, <laughs> so it was, it was a really good feeling though. I mean, how long had you been working towards this moment and watching people around you make tenure? I mean, if you, if you, calculate in graduate school and all those things i mean it and and also you know undergrad because i've basically known i've wanted to do this since i was a kid so it's been like 22 years of working towards this so a really long time wow (laughs) have you answered that question you know what what now that's what i'm working on now um is really trying to rather than approaching things as I normally would, which would be to just sort of on to the next thing, I'm I'm really trying to stop and reflect and take a take some time to really think about what do I want this next chapter in my life to be about um and and what do I really want to focus on. And so I'm I'm getting closer to that answer and definitely, you know, things with my research and things like that are going to keep going. But the great hard about tenure is now I have the space to do things that are a bit more risky. For people that don't know what you study, what's the risky side to that? I mean, I think it's more like before you have tenure, you have to be really strategic that you're going to get products out of out of your work. So meaning like you're going to publish a paper or publish a book or you're going to get a grant so it's like you you want to pick things that you know are going to work now that i have tenure i can start to think about things that either one are more long term so maybe i won't get answers for a couple years or that maybe um you know could fail and so there's it, it sounds funny that it's like now i can fail <laughs> I don't want it to sound like that because I don't really want to fail. But but it's just that I can start taking risks in, in ways and maybe exploring really novel or kind of crazy ideas. That means that I can be more creative in my work. 
It also means being able to focus now more into social justice work and helping, you know, change systems. And I want to ask you about some of that work. But before I do, I'm curious if you were surprised at all to learn that you were the first Black professor at Rasmus to reach this milestone of tenure in academia. This is like, it's kind of a a complicated question because on the one hand, I wasn't surprised. I mean, I go to work every day and you look around and, you know, it's like, (laughs) you know, um, but so I wasn't, I wasn't totally surprised, but I was also, it's, it's this thing of like, you're, you're, I'm proud, right? Because it's a barrier that we've broken, but I'm also like, it's 2022. Like, why hasn't this barrier been broken before? And, but I, you know, I want to say that it's not, unfortunately, it's not just Rasmus, right? When I speak with my um, other colleagues and in particular other Black colleagues in, in other institutions, it's the same thing for them, you know? So, it's exciting that finally this barrier has been broken and you can't go back on it, but it's also like sometimes disappointing because it is 2022. Is it a marine sciences problem or an academia problem? I would say that it's it's both. In academia in general, um, there, you know, there's been a real huge problem with retaining black faculty. Within marine science, I would say that that there is a history of it being very white male dominated, um, and and that's changing and it's shifting, but you know it it that's its history. It's almost this cohort effect where if there is one uh, one person, let's say there's there's one very successful um, black academic, more than likely in a, in a certain field, more than likely they'll start to recruit other black students that then go on to stay in that subfield and so on and so on and they recruit more and so on so it kind of has this propagation effect that occurs recruitment effect um and i think that within marine science it's just starting to happen in that way um but it's taken a little longer well, and I wonder, too, because it's not just recruiting. Um, you've also, you know, you've been working to keep more women, especially more black women, keeping them in academia. So yeah. why do you think you've seen so many of them leave? So, you know, we, we talk a lot about this in, in um, at my nonprofit, um, Black Women in Ecology, Evolution and Marine Science, or BWEAMS, we call it. Um, we talk about this a lot in Bleams because, you know, that's sort of the the elephant in the room. Like, why does everybody leave? And what what I have noticed and observed is that basically, from starting in undergrad, many times Black women are in situations that are very toxic, um, where you know they have professors or people in labs if they're you know doing research being mean to them and saying nasty things and not believing in them, not actually helping them to succeed, not mentoring them in the way that they need. And so when they come up to doing grad school, many of them don't know what 
to look for. I don't have any good mentorship in terms of looking for a good advisor and somebody to to be a good mentor to them. And so they end up um, in, you know, relationships uh, or in a, a graduate program that's really toxic um, that, um, you know, can be, for lack of a better term, abusive. Um, and so after they endure that, there's really no incentive to stay in that system. It's actually self-preservation to leave. And so, um, you know, many of them will then leave academics. You know, one of the things that we're really working on is trying to basically create the mentoring networks to help support the women that are in these situations that are bad and are looking to get out of them and see that there are other ways was there yeah. somebody like that who played that role for you in your career? Did you have a mentor that was particularly supportive or, or maybe a mentor that wasn't supportive that you learned from? There isn't sort of this one person that sort of shepherds you through your career. Um, and so I've had definitely many people along my career that have taught me a lot both good and bad in graduate school and in my postdoc i benefited from good mentors and they they all had their different strengths and weaknesses but i really saw that one person couldn't meet all the needs that i had and so i really tried to create more of a network i'm speaking with professor nikki trailer knowles she recently made tenure an important honored milestone in academia that makes her the first black professor to make tenure at Rasmus. That's the University of Miami's Rosenstiel School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences. You can find out more about Professor Trailer Knowles's research over on our social media at WLRN Sundial. What's kept you in academia? You know, I get asked that a lot. <laughs> and it's like, I, and I think about it because I'm like, whoa, you know, I have had some situations that I was like, that wasn't great. You know, why did I stick this out? And I think one, it's because I've known since I was nine years old that I wanted to do this. Um, and so it, it's sort of like, there was never a doubt in my mind that this is what I wanted to do. Um, and I think the other piece is that um, I have a good support network outside of outside of school and, 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 and research. And then I also really value my life outside of research and, and balance so that my work and my passion with corals and, and marine life and, and addressing climate change and things of that nature, those don't define me. It's just part of, of what I'm excited about in my work, but it's not who I am. The reason I keep at it now is because I'm really committed to changing the system, and I know that I can. That might be your advice now, but thinking back to yourself in undergrad, going yeah. through some of those difficult moments, if you could go back, what would you go back and tell yourself then? I would say, first and foremost, that people's opinions don't define you. Because that that's the thing is that what I realized too, and, and a lot of I think black women and other people of color deal with this, is that our trajectory is not always linear, right? Um, because a lot of these systems are not set up to actually support us and our, our diverse way of being, um, 
when we don't fit into those molds, we're told we don't belong. We're told we're not successful. We're told, you know, that we'll never, we'll never be able to do X, Y, or Z when it's just not true because we're just doing it differently. I would tell myself that it's like, it's okay. And so, science is supposed yeah. to be the trial and error, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's hard because you, a lot of people that are in science, you know, we tend to be perfectionists. We want to do it right. Um, and we're really looking for someone to validate that. And so if, if someone can't or telling you otherwise, you're like, oh my God, maybe I don't belong. And so I've had to really like sit into the idea that it's like outsiders are the source of progress and innovation. That's how things move forward. Was there a specific moment for you when you realized my interest in speaking out for more women and women of color needing better environments at universities? Was there a moment that you sort of realized, wait, I can change the system if I want to? And that that sort of passion for it, you realized you could do something about it. For me, this has been something that I've always spoken about, but I never really um, stood in it like with strength. And and I think part of that was just because I was like so busy. And so when the pandemic hit and I and I think like the whole world, you know, we all kind of had to stop and reevaluate. And so I had that space where I wasn't traveling around everywhere. I wasn't doing all this stuff. And I actually had the time to reflect on things. And that was really a huge turning point for me where I was just like, enough, I'm done. <laughs> like, I want to change this. Um, I'm sick of hearing these stories of like, black women don't exist in marine science, you know, and like, or, or in evolution or in ecology, there's no black women, you know, and it's like, we are here. And Did so you get pushback. Yeah. <laughs> but but then also there was a lot of support because a lot of people woke up at that time. Right. When they had to actually stop um, and, and were actually seeing like how unfair many of the systems that we were operating in were. And especially so. after the death of George Floyd as well. Yes. I'm curious, yeah. you know, what challenges do the women that you encounter who are just coming up in marine science, what are the challenges they're facing and what are they coming to you for advice on? The benefit of tenure is that, you know, firing you is is a lot harder. Um, and so that was designed to give you academic freedom. On the flip side, people take advantage of that, right? Where they don't actually act ethically with their students. And, and that can take a lot of different forms. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. Um, and so, you know, I think what I have encountered is that, you know, there are many students that are just in these, you know, are being advised really poorly or not at all. You know, like sometimes it's just uh, their, their, their advisor is, is missing. And so, really helping them to be strategic about getting what they need and navigating the system. Um, and also validating because many of them are like, is this normal? Is this real? Is this like, is this how things normally are? And just being able to validate that, no, that is not healthy. You need to get out of that. And here's what mm. we can do. Or yes, that is normal, but you know, here's how you can deal with it. You know, and so just being able to also be a sounding board to help them 
have support because I think that that that's such a huge, huge thing to be able to to have. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us, Professor. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was Professor Nikki Trailer Nose speaking with Sundial's Katie Munoz. You can find out more about Professor Trailer Nose Coral Research on a future Wildlife Thursdays on the program later this month. Still to come, South Florida gets to claim the world's so-called youngest Beatles tribute band. They're playing a new concert this weekend. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. In February of 1964, the Fab Four, or the Beatles, spent some time on here, spent some time here on Miami Beach, soaking up sun and doing a television appearance. It was one of their favorite parts of their U.S. tour. Spring forward almost 60 years, and now we meet the Sunset Four, a group billed as the youngest Beatles tribute band in the world. Each of the four members are young teens. This Sunday, they're performing a free concert in Coral Gables. It's a British consulate event to commemorate Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee. Sundial host Luis Hernandez and WLRN Morning Edition anchor Christine DiMatte spoke with the band earlier this year. Oliver Lieberman is on the guitars and vocals, and twin sisters Zoe and Evangeline Lyons. Zoe is on lead vocals, and Evangeline plays the drums. Oliver, I want to start with you. Uh, you've got those George Harrison and John Lennon guitar riffs down pat. What got you into Beatles music in the first place, Oliver? Well, what got me into like Beatles music was like my, my father, because he, like, like he's always been like a Beatles fan and we have like music like all around our house. He always like brought it up and like, I just started playing it when I was like around five and I just always have loved it since. And Zoe, Evangeline, what about you? When did you start listening to Beatles music and why? Okay, so um, at our school, North Beach, Oliver's dad actually brought in a Beatles cover band. And that's where we kind of heard their music for the first time. And we both enjoyed it a lot. So that's how you all met and got together as a band. When did you start performing together? How many years ago? About, About four years ago. Zoe, you're the lead singer. Why did you choose to call yourselves the Sunset Four? Why Sunset? We never really had a reason for it, but all I know is that we, me and my sister, live on like an, um, a neighborhood called Sunset Island. Also, we live in Miami Beach, and it's a lot of sunsets. Combo of Sunset Islands and Fab Four. Perfect. It, it works. Yeah. Um, all right, let's go to, I got to go to the person who keeps the beat, uh, Evangeline. When was the first gig? that you played together and tell me about it. Like, what was it like? Where were you? Um, well, we were actually at Ricky's. It's not Ricky's anymore. I'm pretty sure it's pizza bar now, but it was Ricky's at the time. And I think we were in fourth grade and it was really fun. All of our friends were there, were there and it was actually like, we were all really nervous because that was like our first show. And the only band member who couldn't join us today is Warren Bromley. He plays bass guitar and kudos yeah. Kudos to Warren for his excellent playing. Now, is is Warren left-handed like Paul McCartney? Uh, sadly, no. We like, we tried to start him off left-handed, but he just couldn't do it. <laughs> He's going to have to change that, yeah. <laughs> the Deauville Resort. 
is where the Beatles performed in 1964 on The Ed Sullivan Show. Oliver, your family has a direct connection to that very performance. Can you tell us about that? My grandfather ended up going there, and he tells me about it, like how he loved watching it, and it was like something that he'll always remember forever. He was about like four or five. Oh, my gosh. Whoa. Four or five. Wow. I don't yeah, he was very young, but he still remembers it. I don't know how. I think he just like heard stories from his parents and like, like just deep memories. I don't remember anything from when I was four years old. But uh, you know what, Zoe? How do you feel about the fact that the Dovell is going to get torn down? It's obviously something that I'm very upset. I'm, and I think we all are very upset about because it was a very important landmark also for the Beatles. We were actually going to be called the Dovells at the beginning because of that hotel, but then, I don't know, we decided to go with the Sunset Four. All right, no, 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 hold on, tell me, when you guys were talking about this, you know, how did you determine not to go by, who, who decided, let's not go by the Dovells? Well, we just figured that was too hard to, like, say, and, like, they're spell out, so <laughs> we, just, we, we just went with the Sunset Four. <laughs> well, you could have gone like Doe, like Pillsbury Doughboy or something like that, but that's okay. <laughs> you made the good choice. I like that. I like that. You know, uh, uh, what about, have any of you seen the Peter Jackson's Get Back documentary? Yeah, we, we watched, watched the entire thing, me and my dad. But and me and Evangeline also watched it with my dad. All right, tell me, what what were you thinking about? Did you watch it? What was your favorite part? Evangeline, what about you? What was your favorite part? Probably when they were... I. Yes, still trying to find, like, figure out lyrics and still writing the songs. I thought that was really cool because, like, I guess we play the songs now and they're already, like, so popular. So it's cool, like, seeing them creating the songs. Yeah. Zoe, what about you? I mean, you're sitting here watching the, this iconic band and you get the behind the scenes. You know, most of us, never, we've never seen that. What did you think about when you were watching that? Yeah, so when I was watching it, also, I mean, it would be the same thing as me and my sister are talking about it, but um, it was just really cool watching them also create the lyrics and just kind of create the beat for it because, like my like Evangeline said, it wasn't the song wasn't even a thing yet, so it's really cool watching it before it was made and then looking at like the progress that the song has made now. So that was really cool. Yeah. And, and Oliver, when you're watching it, I mean, are you learning something new for you as you you know thinking about how you want to perform? Yeah, watching it made me feel like I was them, and it just it kind of just changes the way I play their music. Now, I just can't resist asking, when you're all together rehearsing, do you start to talk like the Beatles? <laughs> no, we don't, we don't do that. Not we, at all? Maybe we joke around sometimes, but not really. See, Lewis, let's hear you do that, all right? I can't Maybe do... the way we sing the harmonies in like, the songs. Stay When you joke around, like, what's the joking around like between you guys? Whenever, like, I see, like, Evangeline doing something and messing up, I just say, like, something just to make her laugh. That's refreshing. It's, most, it's funny. Most bands fight when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. We, we, we also fight a lot. What? We fight a lot. You do? What's it? Come <laughs> Not, on. like, really bad, but we argue. Okay. What, like, what? Tell me, what, what what's a typical argument? Sometimes when we're singing the Beatles... Oliver and I will maybe forget a lyric one time or we'll both sing a different thing and we won't know who's right. And usually I end up being right. But, you know, we argue about that. And then Oliver thinks it's one lyric and I think it's another one. And then 
that's kind of what we argue about. There's like anybody who's in a band, it's a lot of practice and rehearsal. How, how do you balance playing music in school? We usually practice around two times a week, sometimes three, depending on our schedules. But on Wednesdays after school at 530 to 6.30, we do a rehearsal together. Sometimes it's till seven. Oh yeah, and also we have like our friends come around, watch our rehearsals a lot. So that's kind of like a preview of our shows for them. You know, I I wondered if, and I don't even know how many places still exist. I know when the Beatles came to Miami, they loved it here. And they spent a lot a lot longer time here than they did anywhere else in the U.S. But have have you guys gone around to the different spots where the Beatles have hung out just to see those places? I don't even know if they're still there. Me and my dad drove around. Well, he so he doesn't have like an electric bike, e-bike. So we he drives us around on that all the time. And he he showed me like the house where they that picture when they were in the pool. Mm-hmm. The famous yeah. picture of them with their heads sticking up above the water. Yeah, he took me to that house, like he and he showed me that house. And also, we're going to um like do a picture with um a boxer, just like um the Beatles did with Muhammad Ali. So that's what we're gonna um do too. So that's <laughs> that is so cool. I don't know if you guys know this, but we've got a very rich Beatles tradition here at WLRN. Our morning program host Joe Johnson was the longtime host of Beatle Brunch, syndicated radio show. And our director of radio programming, Peter J. Maris, he, he plays in a tribute band called Across the Universe. So you've got some competition. How about it? Are you guys up to a battle of the bands one day? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe one day. <laughs> he said that with absolutely no hesitation. He's like, Oliver's like, bring it on. All right. I want to ask each of you your favorite Beatles song. Zoe, start with you. My favorite Beatles song is probably I Really Like Love Me Do and She Loves You. Those are probably my um, two favorite songs from Beatles. Yeah. All right. No, I, I, I can't pick one I don't like, but okay. Evangeline, what about you? I like playing Please Please Me a lot and Get Back and Don't Let Me Down. Don't let me down. Oliver. I mean, even though we're not really good at the song, Help. Help is probably my favorite song. I just like the way it's, you sing it and I just like the lyrics about it and like the harmonies in it. If the two surviving Beatles, Paul and Ringo, were here in the studio right now, what would you say to them or ask them? I would ask how they, you know, worked with the music business and everything because like Oliver said, we also have tried to like, you know, start writing songs and try to do our own songs. So it'd be nice to kind of, even though that get back, um, the documentary kind of showed us how they kind of wrote their songs. I would kind of like to ask them that and get more of like a personal answer. Evangeline? I would probably want to talk to Ringo the most just because like he plays drums and just like ask him, I guess, about technique and stuff and things like that. Something else I'd probably ask him to do is to come and play with us on stage. Like the play, the play their music with us because they they were the ones that made their songs. So it would right. be cool if they would play with us. All right, Paul w- Ringo, are you listening? Are you out there? Oh my God, <laughs> that would be a dream come true. Well, you know, it's, yeah. because I think about what you just said, and do you do all of you see a career in music? Or, you know, do you just want to keep doing Beatles music, or do you think that eventually you'll, you know, break out and do your own thing? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we're gonna start doing some other songs, but now we're playing like Foo Fighters. We are gonna play Yellow by uh, Coldplay, a lot of Coldplay songs, and Green Day. Good choices. You've got two anchors here with very very broad smiles. That's our favorite music. <laughs> uh, Oliver, we'll start with you. What do you What do you want to do when you grow up? That's a hard question. I don't really know yet, but I'm gonna of course I'm gonna continue with my music. You know, as a full career, but of like just I want to play it and I want to play my music for people but besides that I don't really know what I'm going to be when I grow up well not yet but no, don't worry man I, I, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up and I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting older uh, Zoe what about you I'm hoping to learn guitar because I really want to try to because I want to be able to like write my own songs and be able to you know sing and write it fantastic Evangeline you I would definitely want to be a drummer when I'm older just because I've loved it since I was in fourth grade. Actually, no, third grade. So it's just something I've always loved, and I really want to continue with it. Again, drummers are the coolest. That's all I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Hey, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure talking Thank, with thank all you of guys. you. guys. So much fun. Thank you for having thank us. You heard from Oliver Lieberman, who is on guitars and vocals, and twin sisters Zoe and Evangeline Lyons. Zoe is on lead vocals and Evangeline plays the drums. They help make up the Sunset Four, a local Beatles tribute band. And they were speaking with Sundial host Luis Hernandez and Morning Edition anchor Christine DiMatte. Check out some of their music videos and more info on the free concert happening on Sunday on our social media at WLRN Sundial. And that's Sundial for Wednesday, June 1st. Katie Munoz is our lead producer. Leslie Ovalle is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Leprecohen. Our news director is Terrence Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. Jessica Bakeman is our senior news editor. WLRN's interim program director and technical supervisor is Peter J. Mayers. Engineering our board operations today is Richard Ives. You can download a podcast of this program. Search WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk about why Wendy's fast food location at Florida Florida Atlantic University will stay closed for good after students and farm workers urge the chain to join a program that prevents labor abuse. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Thank you so much for listening. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. I'm in love for the first time. Don't you know it's gonna last? It's a love that lasts forever. It's a love that had no past. Don't let me down. Don't let me down. WLRN Public Media.